what is something that you believe in that no one else around you does? If you've heard episode 30 with Ritesh Agarwal, the founder and CEO of OU Rooms, then you'll recognize this as a question he had to answer while applying for the Thiel Fellowship. It's a simple but powerful question that usually differentiates motivated, passionate and unreasonable founders from other equally capable professionals. Because what is a startup if not but a mere belief in something that should exist? The question, what is something that you believe in that no one else around you does, is also equally apt for my guest today. Because Soumya Rajan believed in something that no one else around her did. Soumya is the founder and CEO of Waterfield Advisors, India's largest multifamily office and wealth advisory firm which manages over 40,000 crore rupees. That's over $4 billion for its clients. But in 2010, Soumya was working at Standard Chartered Bank, a bank she joined straight from college after back-to-back mathematics degrees. A bank where she'd worked for 17 straight years. A bank which had been her first and only job. Most importantly, for the last two years, she'd been the head of Standard Chartered's private banking arm. She'd reached the very top. But having reached there, was wondering why she wasn't interested in playing the same game anymore. Perhaps it was because 2010 was also the year Soumya turned 40, the age when many professionals hit their midlife crisis. If you remember, Karthik Jairaman, the co-founder and CEO of Waycool, decided to start up too after hitting 40. Soumya too decided to quit her job and start out on her own by making a contrarian bet that it was better to charge her wealthy clients directly for financial advice instead of making money via commissions paid by financial services companies whose products she would recommend. Soumya says that in 2010, this went completely against the tide in India's wealth management sector. No one else was doing it. Even her peers and ex-colleagues were dismissive of her belief. In this episode, Soumya, in her calm and reflective manner, tells me her story. There is a strong thread of vision that runs through our entire conversation. Soumya is driven by a sharp sense of curiosity and purpose in everything that Waterfield Advisors is doing. You'll notice it in the way she breaks down her midlife crisis, her role as CEO, her beliefs about products and incentives, and even her work for empowering women as investors. We also talk about what the wealth management landscape of India looks like. Why Waterfield is like a lawyer or doctor but for financial well-being. How to survive in the short term when you're building to last. And the one question she asks people before hiring them. This is episode 32 of First Principles with Soumya Rajan. Let's get started. Thank you, Soumya, uh, for appearing on the show. I want to start with how you started Waterfield. I think from our research, it came up that you had a midlife crisis of sorts. Uh, you turned 40 and you knew that you wanted to do something different. What was it? What was that feeling? What was that, you know, I, was it ennui? Was it something else? 
could you take us back to when you turned 40 and you had that midlife crisis? Um, so yes, Rohan, love to tell you about what prompted the decision to become an entrepreneur. Uh, so as you rightly said, uh, I had just turned 40. It was 2010 at that time. And uh, it was just two years after the global financial crisis of 2008. And at that time, I was heading the private bank of Standard Chartered. I was quite lucky in my stints in Standard Chartered. I got everything very early in life. So here I was heading a PNL, uh, which was the private bank by 38, which was 2008. What I found when I was heading the private bank was that um, I didn't think we were going about it correctly in the way in which we managed our clients. I thought that we were very transaction focused. We were very keen on looking at the investment side of it. But when you spoke to different clients, they wanted more. So you had your relationship managers who would be very happy to have gone and done an investment of five crores for a client who was actually worth 500 crores. And they were kind of, you know, doing cartwheels. And I thought, but this, is, this isn't right because the client, one, is worth much more. The client is also looking for much more. And we were not solving that problem in the private bank uh, because we were very investment heavy. The second big problem was that we were in what is called a distribution-led business. The industry was distribution-led. So as a bank, we were making our money from the commissions that we received from the product manufacturers. So as a business head, I am motivated. Product here being? Product being a, a mutual fund or a PMS or um, uh, or a PMS or a, let's Pretty say an alternative. Pretty much the same way a bank would a bank. operate even for a retail customer. Correct, even right? today. Um, and then I thought, but I as a business head am motivated by the product that gives me the most money. So if there was a product that gave me very little fees, let's say 20 basis points or 30 basis points, um, what was my motivation to have the relationship manager actually place that product in a client's portfolio as opposed to someone else who was giving me 5% of fees and then the relationship manager is then motivated to sell that product or place that product in a portfolio. So somewhere in my mind, that didn't sit right. So just the ethics of it, if you, if, if there's a better word, I don't know, but the ethics of it, that there was a non-alignment of interests or there was a conflict of interest when I called myself an advisor, but I was actually maybe placing some other product in a client's portfolio, that didn't sit well with me. So a combination of the ethics and the values, a combination of just the market sentiment of post-global financial crisis and most uh, individuals and clients being quite unhappy with their banks because you, the global financial crisis really did come because big banks in the US had one um, set of products that they had on their proprietary books and they were selling another bunch of products to their clients. And that led to the crisis. So when I was reading all this, I just kept thinking that, you know, this is going to happen in India. It's going to be, it's going to happen within a couple of years, if not a decade, 
where we're suddenly going to find that clients are going to be quite unhappy where they have their wealth managers pushing products to them that don't necessarily meet their needs. Um, so I said, okay, we keep complaining about, you know, uh, let somebody else do it. Let somebody else take the, you know, take the first plunge. And I thought, no, let let me take that leap of faith. And at that time, of course, I was also going through this, you know, the questions that you ask at 40 as what is the meaning of your life? What is the relevance of what you're doing? And then I said, well, um, could I start a company which was a company which did not have any of these conflict of interest issues? Could we be a company that had a holistic wealth management services that we could provide? And then I remember talking to my husband and saying, you know, I'm going to do this because we've always been, uh, you know, a double income family. And what will it mean now if I give up my job? Uh, are you okay for me to do this? And I remember my parents being in utter shock, shock, because if I go back to my own background, we came from a salaried um, background. My father was with State Bank of India. He'd been in one job all his life. And I had been Green Day Standard Chartered for 17 years. I'd never moved after the first job that I took up. So it was quite difficult for the family to accept the fact that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. Um, but I think somewhere deep down inside, my husband knew that I wanted to build something, I wanted to create something, and he never wanted me to have any regrets uh, in my life. And likewise, I didn't want to have any regrets in my life. So that's how Waterfield was born. Fascinating. So in many ways, you climbed to the top of the corporate ladder and then realized that the prize wasn't really what you thought it would be. Yeah. And then you started about trying to recreate it from scratch. Yeah. Great. Um, your family, like all, I think, traditional um, salary, middle class, like, you know, I come from one as well. And I had versions of the same conversation that like, you know, are you stupid? Like, why would you give away a job? So many years of experience, right? Because I mean, and to be fair to them, they cannot process this, right? So, of course, they were in shock. Um, your husband was supportive. But from what we understand, a lot of the your peers were very skeptical that what you would start would fail within a couple of years. And I mean, just as an outsider, I would kind of wonder the same too, that you're really been talking about incentives, that um, banks or financial institutions are incentivized to sell products where they make more money. And this is a truism. I walk into a retail store, uh, the stuff which is kept near the checkout counter is more profitable. If I ask for a brand of biscuits, the brand which is recommended to me is the one which gives the shopkeeper more incentives, right? So incentives drives everyone's behavior. What was it? And, and I'm assuming that was what your peers were saying that, look, you're going to fail because you're going against the way the incentive system is structured. Were they wrong? And what did you see back then that they weren't seeing? So uh, that's a great question, uh, Rohin, because rightly, um, I think what a lot of my peers were seeing 
and perhaps a lot of people even today see is a kind of short termism in the way in which they build their businesses uh, or they look at businesses whereas when i looked at waterfield and i looked at what i was building this was about the long term but more importantly it was about building right not just for um not just for clients but for the ecosystem that today if you have only one business model which is in a particular way which is based on a certain set of incentives but that doesn't land correctly for the client or one of the stakeholders then that jars in my mind so for me it was could we create a business model that was actually aligned with what is better for the larger ecosystem and stakeholders so every every time i always heard but indians don't pay fees because the business model that i was now embarking upon was to say that i will not get compensated by my product manufacturer but i will get compensated by my client because only if the client pays me fees will i then have a true alignment in serving their interests best so when i when i looked at my peers my peers were saying indians don't pay fees because they've always been getting money from the product manufacturer i was trying to say well we haven't really tested this because i was thinking about lawyers i was thinking about doctors and i was thinking that you go to your lawyer and doctor when you need medical help legal help by the same token your financial well-being needs to be taken care of also by somebody who has your best interest at heart so could waterfield be positioned as a company that was like a law- lawyer or a doctor but it was positioned to take after your look after your financial well-being and that meant being able to be much more holistic in the way in which we looked at the um looked at either the opportunity or what we were trying to solve for uh but clearly yes uh it was quite a fight uh which was there against competition but when i look at now statistics uh which is let's say a developed market today uh advisory wealth advisory is about almost 60% of the way in which clients are um clients engage with their wealth managers is through an advisory model today it is still 14 to 15% in india but if you were to talk to any competitor today they will all say we are moving towards the advisory model i'm happy to note that you know waterfield was a pioneer in this space uh, 10 years ago on that um you know not of the difference between long term and short term thinking whenever a new player wants to disrupt a sector which is driven by short term thinking and incentives and it says we want to bring in a long term perspective it necessitates that for the first few years they will make less money they might probably not be profitable they might have to go through a lot of hardships because the entire system is going to work against them right you go and talk to a client and the client will be like you really you want me to pay you money how come nobody else you know i mean in in many ways we went through some version of that ourselves it's like indians don't pay for news 
I mean, that's not true. I mean, all Indians uh, want everything subsidized by advertising. As we see today through the rise of subscription-driven OTT channels or news platforms, that's not true. Like you rightly said, somebody's got to do it to see whether it works or not. But when you did it for the first few years, you were a single person starting out. I mean, did you have co-founders? How did you fund yourself? I mean, it's great to have the philosophy of wanting to build a long-term business model, but how would you do it in the medium to short term? Because you're going against the grain and you don't have the capital and the infrastructure of the system. Um, so one thing I will say, Rohan, is I think I was uh, fair, quite the idealist uh, at that time because for me it's about can you build something better for the greater good uh, was always a inherent kind of philosophy. Maybe a lot of that I would uh, in some ways ascribe to just good family values, which have been ingrained over the years. But what could you do for the greater good? But the practical issues of, you know, how do you fund yourself and how do you make ends meet? Um, I think one was I do have a co-founder. Um, so the person who I chose to be a co-founder with me at Waterfield was someone who was in the search business because in my... Sorry, what does that mean? Executive search. Ah, so Very interesting. Uh, yeah. The marriage of wealth management and, and executive, executive search. search. Yeah. And, and the reason behind that was because in my mind, when you built a business or you had uh, starting something new, the core of it is people. So if you don't have good people, then how are you going to build a company? Today, I'm very proud that the first employee of Waterfield still is an employee of Waterfield or after all these years. But to me, that was like the perfect co-founder that I could have, somebody who knew people in the ecosystem because my ecosystem at that point was very narrow. It was just standard chartered and everything in and around standard chartered. And I realized only after I left Standard Chartered how big the opportunity and how big the world really is. Because when you tend to be in an organization, you get very fixated on your ecosystem of the organization. And you don't really think beyond. So for me, it was like this, oh my goodness, what a wealth of opportunity there is outside. Um, and I felt even, you know, we can talk about this later, that I actually grew as a person after I became an entrepreneur. Um but having said that, for the first couple of years, um, I was very hesitant to raise any kind of external capital. I was very clear that I wanted to make sure that this business model did actually work. And when I first started Waterfield, we didn't even have regulation that supported us. So company is founded in August 2011. The first time we have any kind of regulation that's even supportive is when SEBI had this direct and distribution plans that came out in September of 2012. So for those first five, six months, I was knocking on various people's doors and they were telling me, look, why should we pay double fees? Because they're paying distribution fees and on top of it, they'll pay advisory fees. And I was really thinking, gosh, this is not going anywhere. And I will say that I was ready at that point a year on to say, Let's just shut this business. It's not working. It's too early uh, for this idea. How many people were you at that point? About three or four, not more than that. Um, and then I was thinking, this is clearly not working. And then Sebi happened and I said, okay, 
this is a chance. It means that I can work with clients to say, I will do your mutual fund distributions, your mutual fund allocations through the direct plan and not the distribution plan. And I can help you save some money. Um, because the there is no, ex, it's a little bit more technical, but you have an expense ratio, which is there in distributor versus direct plans and direct plans are cheaper, which means that you could have some advisory fees, which is also there and the client is still better off going through that route. And I said, all right, this is an opportunity. The good part was within three months of that, January of 2013, um, SEBI came out with another set of guidelines, which was the Registered Investment Advisor Guidelines, which then suddenly meant that we have a business. We have an opportunity to really build a business in advisory. I could ask you uh, why, why those guidelines were so good for you. It was very good because the other thing I realized when I was reaching out to people in that one year was that if you're not regulated in financial services, there is always this hesitancy of giving money to someone or getting somebody to advise them because they this, they think that you can up and leave tomorrow and then what happens to their money, which is extremely valid. And especially if you don't have the brand of a large bank backing oh, you. Oh, absolutely. And I think, in fact, that is a learning for me in some ways, uh, which was that... That was quite a shock uh, because when you when you're when you have a visiting card that says that you are the head of the private bank, everyone's ready to talk to you. And then the moment you don't have that, and you're just you yourself, waiting to even have um, an appointment or a meeting with somebody, the doors close, uh, and it takes a long time to rebuild. But that's that, that was more learning. Could you tell us about Waterfield Advisors? How would you describe the firm? What is it and what does it do? Um, so Waterfield is a group of professional managers who will work with you as a client or a family in all your investment and non-investment related requirements. So if you have some money which you want, you've got as a corpus, you want to make it, you either want to save that money and you want to grow it, then we help you in terms of identifying the best products which are out there, which will help you for the outcome that you want in your portfolio. And different people have different outcomes. Some people may be wanting to um, invest that money for their business. Some may be wanting to invest that money uh, because for their retirement, someone else for their children's education. We try to understand what is the purpose behind which you want to invest and help you there. The non-investment part is really the part which a lot of private banks were not addressing, which is around succession. You have a family business. How do you then make sure that that family business is uh, passed on to the next generation in a good way? How do you make sure that you prevent conflicts from arising when that business gets passed down? Um, how do you make sure that you have a will in place in terms of your own legacy? So we were trying to look at wealth management from the broader perspective of all the other things that wealth managers do, which is around succession, around legacy, around family governance, around philanthropy. Unfortunately, in India, 
wealth management is equal to investment management. I was just about to ask you that because the way you described it, it looks like the first line of business for you is like investment advisory for retail investors, but at a higher order level for families and high net worth individuals, right? So it's the same thing because yes. even an investment advisor does pretty much the same thing. What are your needs? When would you want money? We'll recommend. And, and that's what you do, but at a much larger scale. Yes. The second part, what you said, is largely absent from the retail investor space and for probably like, you know, uh, maturity reasons. Correct. And and I think that's where, but that's what a client actually wants. They want some... Wants enough to pay for it? I think they will want enough to pay for it because by having an advisor on your side, you prevent the accidents from happening. What are we promising? We are promising to at least try and help prevent the accidents or making sure that something terrible doesn't happen. Could we... Are we, so when you look at investments as well, it's not always about investment return maximization. It's about return optimization for your level of risk or whatever are the outcomes that you want. Having an advisor tell you that I think is extremely important because otherwise you may get carried away with the noise. We're like, you know, I, I don't want to say that we're the cold water, which is, you know, kind of dousing all the exuberance. But we are the realist in the room to tell you what can go right, but what can also go wrong. Um, so the way you make money is largely through fees that you charge from clients? It's only through fees. It's only through fees. You did mention that you have... You do invest and you have a fund of funds business as well. That is Where correct. does that come in? Does that is that part of the first like you're investing your yes. clients money on behalf of them? Yes. So when you have you have two models, uh, you would have an advisory model, which is where uh, we provide advice to a client. So we know their entire portfolio. We then decide how much is going to go into equities, how much we're going to fixed income, how much we're going to gold, how much we're going to gold, international allocations. Um, but there are times when the client does not have the time to be able to actually manage their investments, in which case we say we will operate these investments through a discretionary wrapper. So it is still multi-asset class, but you've given us the discretion to say, here is the 100 rupees, please go and manage it on my behalf. The fund of funds specifically was... Um, was a initiative that we started in 2020. And that was a fallout from the advisory business because what happened in advisory is that, let's say that I was investing into different private equity and venture funds. What I found is that we were doing the diligence, we, were, we have all the data, we spend a lot of time with the fund managers to understand what is it that they're doing. And then we recommend to a client and say, please put money into this private equity or this venture fund. But we found that in the process, um, we were not necessarily getting institutional rights for the investments that we made. And by institutional rights, I mean that we weren't always getting co-investment opportunities on the fund because the ticket sizes were too small individually, but collectively would serve the the threshold that the funds had. We weren't necessarily getting pro rata. 
uh, we weren't getting a seat on the LP Advisory Council. And um, we could or may or may not get better fee terms. That may or may not happen. But we found that when we aggregated the capital and we created a fund structure where we aggregated family office capital, we were then one single check into the fund. So the funds loved that because we were then aggregating this capital. We were then in a position to give one check. They then saw us as an institution of domestic capital and said, well, we're very happy to provide the institutional rights for you in terms of a seat on the LPAC, pro-rata rights, co-investment rights, and so forth. That worked very well for us because it meant that we could then be much more integrated into the ecosystem and we would play to our strengths. Our strengths was the diligence that we did on the fund. I think the one thing to note, Rohan, here is that the way in which a distributor business runs is that when you, if you're a wealth distributor and you give money to a fund, then the fund manager is paying the wealth distributor for distributing the fund. Whereas in our case, we were choosing the fund for who they really were in terms of their performance, in terms of their team, in terms of the exits, in terms of just their, just their caliber. So it then meant that for the funds themselves, they found a partner who was completely in alignment with them. They didn't have to destroy their economics just in order to get much more capital by going through the wealth distributor route. So that really worked you, well. I mean, you've said you work largely with high net worth individuals and families. If I may ask, what's a broad ticket size when like, you know, that that kind of buys you entry to be advised by Waterfield Advisors? So we have different uh, segments at Waterfield. When we first started, um, it was really trying to cater to the client that had more than 30 million in terms of financial assets. Um, we then dropped that maybe around three, three years after I started the business, three, four years after I started the business to 10 million because we then found that we needed to also be part of the journey for the families as they were creating wealth. So one of the things we spoke about earlier, which was on the non-investment side of it, a big part of it is around your investment vehicles, is around have you got the right structures? Have you got the right trust structures in place? Is that an, And sometimes you need to do that before the liquidity event. So we found that we needed to start working with our clients from the 10 million threshold itself in order for us to help them through the liquidity event. But then more recently, um, I've been asked, well, you do all this good stuff for the very rich, what about democratizing that a little bit more? And that's when about 18 months ago, we started working with uh, clients who were typically corporate professionals. So if they were lawyers, if they were doctors, if they were private equity partners, if they were management consultants, we realized that they were very time poor. Uh, they wanted all this, but they didn't have the time. But they also wanted to work with a company that had their interest at heart. So these would be, what, a three to five million dollars? These would typically start now at about two million. I would say now I would. it's about that two to ten million segment is where we're currently operating. The one exception, though, that I've made even to this two million threshold is where women are concerned. Uh, on International Women's Day, we launched a segment called Heritage. 
uh, the H-E-R is the her in heritage. Um, because I believe that when we were working with women professionals, with women entrepreneurs, and with uh, women inheritors, um, they needed something a little different. Money didn't always come to them in the two million or three million at that level so quickly, but they needed, uh, I won't, I don't know if this is the right word, a safe harbor, a safe place where they could ask questions where they wouldn't feel judged. Um, and But, I mean, this is true. I mean, virtually every research oh, that has come yeah. out about women and investment yeah. comes to the fact that I think they're always looking for like, you know, places where they can they can be treated as uh, professionals, as people and not have a default point of view thrust upon them and have someone Correct. on top. Should I? And I think Waterfield does that. We are 50% of our staff are women. Uh, 33% of my senior leadership team are women. Um, and we engage with women in a different way because through heritage, I've realized that these women who we're catering to are already financially independent. So we're not solving the independence problem. Someone else is doing that. We're solving a financial literacy problem because they may be financially independent, but they don't know how to manage their money or they don't know who to ask if they want to plan for a particular life event that may be happening. So in Heritage, we look at three things. We look at financial literacy. We look at networking, because for women, networks are very important. Uh, and networks outside what they may see through their family structures or their spouses or otherwise, or even their work ecosystems, it's nice to have a network outside of that. And the third is wealth with a purpose, because ultimately I believe women tend to be, when they're looking at their wealth management, tend to be quite goal-oriented. They know why they are saving that money. It, As I said, you know, it could be for uh, retirement, it could be for their children's education, it could be to start a foundation, it could be for starting a business later. But they're thinking about, well, I have this pot right now, what do I do so that I kind of... I, and here I will use the word maximize because I think it's about how do I maximize this because they know that that wealth is going to be used for good in something that will help them and their families going forward. You, you said women tend to be slightly more goal-oriented. Yes. I would ask you to contrast that with men as opposed to men who are... Um, I think goal-oriented in terms of their money. Uh, they mm. are very, they're very clear mm. that... I would like my money to be this. I would like it to be used for this. And we then work backwards with them to say that um, let, us, let us look at the options in terms of the portfolio to get you to that goal. And the difference between men and women in investing is that let's say I share with a woman client that you sh this is good for you to get to your goal, but this is a much riskier product. It will get to your goal, but the woman has to uh, will ask a lot of questions on the risk side to be satisfied that it is appropriate for her to take that risk, to make that investment. Whereas with um, some of the male investors that we work with, they may be looking much more at the risk and they're 
more accepting of the risk, may not ask as many questions as a woman would before making that investment. That's what I've seen. They they just want to research and be sure a lot more uh, as women before they jump into making an investment because they're oriented to is that in line with what is the outcome that I ultimately want. Hmm, that's that's interesting. From what you're saying, it's they're more purpose-driven. Purpose-driven. Purpose-backwards. That I'm, I'm laser-sharp about what the ultimate purpose uh, is. Yes. And will this deviate me from my purpose or not? And you're saying, and, and of course, we're generalizing a little it, bit. It is. It uh, is. Men are more in terms of, I mean, I'm trying to maximize my wealth. If this is risky, it's okay because I think they're slightly more hazier on the purpose because I'm, ma- it's okay. Yeah. One is focused more on the, again, I'm generalizing yeah. journey, whereas yeah. the other person is slightly more focused on the destination on and the, the destination. purpose. And uh, we've seen, it's, it's, I said, I said yes, you're right, yes, you said. We are hugely generalizing. And, and I don't think we should either. But this is just that um, they are, their wealth needs to have a meaning. It, it it needs to have a meaning. You said earlier, and, and, and of course you're right, that women become financially independent, but they are not financially literate. Now, in any series of events, those two words would never be juxtaposed like that. You would never become independent without being literate in that area. And yet you said... That women become independent financially, but they are often still not literate. Yes. I mean, of course we know, but I would still like to understand from you, why is that? And how can we hope to reverse that so that literacy precedes independence as much as possible? Um, And and that is really the reason of heritage. Uh, Because what I've seen is that um, women, when they're financially independent... Um, they also multitask on a number of different things in their lives. So they're looking after their kids, they've got their jobs, they've got, um, you know, they've they've got elderly parents who they may, may be also looking after. So at any point in time, there are multiple priorities. So for some reason, the investment part is something that they tend to delegate to a spouse, to a father, to a brother, uh, to someone else, because they've got so many other things to do and they're multitasking all the time that, well, this is one less thing for them to worry about. So it's the easiest to just give away to someone else to say, you know, you take care of the investing and just do everything else. For and us, the source of many future issues and troubles later on once they cross that financial independence path and they realize that look yeah i wish i had done this better earlier on and and i think uh and there's also good reason to do it because women tend to outlive men so we see women coming into wealth sometimes very late uh because their spouse has passed away they've inherited all this money and they just don't have a clue as to how to go about looking after it. And at that time, it may be too late to try and learn new things. Of course, many women, you know, then have no choice but to confront it and learn. But I would rather that they learn earlier. Uh, Let them learn. They may not choose to be the active investor. They may still say, let me delegate this out to somebody else. But don't uh, relegate the the um, 
the decision uh, delegated. I think there's a different, slight difference here. One is where you are consciously asking someone else to do it. In the other case, you have not, you have deprioritized it. So I think that's very relevant. A uh, couple of questions about Waterfield. Uh, what can you tell us in terms of its size? I mean, how many employees uh, are there at Waterfield today? Um, so we have about 120. Um, in the last one year, we've kind of doubled uh, our uh, staff. Uh, we raised a round of capital in January 22. Um, so that helped us to really uh, accelerate and build and grow and scale our business to be much larger and also in some ways to start working in this new segment. This, How um, large is your business? What do you look at? Assets uh, under we look at assets under management. That's really the driver uh, for us. We manage close to about 40,000 crores uh, right now. And that 40,000 crores is, um, is across financial assets. So we don't include a lot of other things that other wealth management companies may look at. Uh, but for us, it's just what we manage, which is the financial assets. Um, when I look at Waterfield and when I look at the opportunity, I just think that I want to be able to kind of spread the good stuff that we do uh, in many ways. And can we help more families? Can we help more clients? Can we help more corporate professionals? Can we help more women? Just do not be afraid of money and to have a good relationship with money. And I think that's, that's a what... phrase, right? Yeah. Afraid of money. I mean, yeah. normally one would never think that you would be afraid of money or wealth. Yes. And yet you said that. Yes. And Why? I mean, could you explain what, what does that mean, being afraid of money? I think for women, it, the context is that, will I make a bad investment, right? Yeah. For people who are very wealthy, with wealth also comes problems. Right. So it's will about I blow it up? Will, I not preserve it? will I not preserve it? Will no, I blow it up? Correct. Will I not? Uh, will I not be able to pass it down correctly? If I give it to my children too early, will they blow it up? I mean, these are all the things will or will it and could money lead to conflict within the family? Because one side of the family has more money, the other side has less. I mean, the money can cut both ways. Uh, and here, I think we want to try and make sure that people have a healthy relationship with money. Um, going forward. You said uh, you have raised uh, venture money, but not from venture capitalists. How much money have you raised and who did you raise it from and why is it not from venture capitalists? Uh, great question. Um, so when I did my first round of capital raising, this was about uh, four years after the three years after the company had started and we raised it first from a family office uh, this was the Patni family uh, Amit and Arihant Patni who actually kind of approached us because they saw what we were building in the wealth management space and they had just had a liquidity event which had happened in 2011 and they realized that what we were trying to build was exactly what families needed. People who did not have a conflict of interest when they were advising families, people who looked at a more holistic view on wealth management, helping families as they transitioned out of their core business into something else. In fact, that's one of the big things that we see in Waterfield, that when you have a liquidity event, um, 
the core identity and you exit a business, the identity of the family is then lost because they're so closely affiliated with the company that they have to rebuild a new new identity for themselves, much like entrepreneurship, actually, when you start afresh. Um, so they came in in 2014, and that uh, was a relationship. Even today, Amit and Arihan continue on our board. Um, and I found that what family offices brought was patient capital because... Uh, so it's the same thing in the other direction. It's long-term thinking It's long-term thinking the other way. And I thought, well, this is good because a wealth management business is going to take time to build, particularly if I'm trying to pioneer a new business model, it's going to take even longer. And here was somebody who was willing to look at supporting the journey of Waterfield uh, and really the values were the same. Um, so that was the first round that happened. Uh, the second round that happened was in December 2019. And I said, well, really like the family offices. They understand what we're doing. And I said, well, let's raise a bit more capital. Let's raise it for more family offices. We did that again. Um, and then, uh, so the first round we raised was about, uh, if I remember correctly, about $2 million when we raised the first time. The second time that we raised, we raised another uh, 30 crores, uh, which was primary capital. And the last round that I did in January was another 40 crores. So Waterfield, in terms of the funding that we've had, has actually been very reasonably capital efficient. We've built this in about 10 million over the last 12 years. Um, and it's a great business. It just, you can sleep well at night, you know, and it's... Uh, but you still didn't answer my question of why did you not raise it from venture capitalists? Oh, yes. In, so it's interesting. In December 2019, when we raised capital, there were a few private equity and venture funds that were kind of interested in what we were doing. Uh, but I kept speaking to them and I saying, look, I think we're quite early for you. And we're also, um, we're not raising large amounts of capital. But they liked what we were building. So at that time, there were four venture and private equity funds that actually funded Waterfield from their GP arms. Because I said, look, I'm, I'm not going to be able to give you an exit in a hurry. And if you do ask for the exit, then I don't want to destroy the nice relationship we have with each other. So they supported us, um, and there were four of them. There was uh, there was TVS Capital, um, there was uh, Zephyr, um, there was uh, Gaja, and Chirate. And they all invested into Waterfield through their uh, GP arms, which is really the vehicle through which they make their sponsor commitment to their funds. So I was very grateful for that support because I think they've all always known that we wanted to build something different. It's going to take longer, but it was also trying to do the right thing. So very grateful for that support. So we did take money from them, but not through their fund, but from their GP arms. Thank you, Soumya. You hold a bachelor's degree in mathematics from St. Stephen's and a master's in mathematics from Oxford. I mean, I have two questions, right? Like, you know, I mean, a double degree in mathematics. Was that conscious? Was that part of, again, like, you know, I mean, a lot of us are from a generation where a lot of our career choices, or at least education choices were defined by uh, families, right? And after mathematics, how do you end up in banking? 
Um, so I love maths. I mean, just as a subject all my life, uh, just absolutely love the subject. Uh, when I finished school, there was uh, a lot of my class was going into engineering. And, um, you know, the the choice was, do you become an engineer? And yes, I will say, Rohan, very conditioned, given uh, a family background that one, you study hard. Uh, you, We had the opportunity of going to the best schools. I keep saying we because I'm one of a twin, uh, Rohan. Yes, you have a twin uh, sister. I have a twin sister. So it was always about, you know, um, my parents uh, put us into the best schools even on limited resources that they had, because they believed that education was the most important thing that they could give us. I think when they do that, there is an automatic kind of responsibility that you feel, uh, at least maybe I felt, my sister felt, that we needed to study hard um, and do well in order to um, to make our way in this world. Um, Stephen's happened because... Um, I remember writing the IIT exams, not getting through, and then saying, well, what do I do next? And uh, loved mathematics. So it was like, okay, I will do a degree uh, in maths because I love the subject. Stephen's happened. Uh, my sister and I both went to Stephen's. She did economics, I did mathematics. And then um, after that, somewhere at the back of uh, my mother's mind, she was very keen that my sister and I go to England and go to Oxford and Cambridge. This is one of the questions that one of our subscribers had asked. And I think a lot of people who want to be entrepreneurs one day, founders one day, wonder, how did you find your first 10 colleagues? This is where I think the co-founder helped <laughs> the hmm. fact that he was in search so the initial employees were all really people who my co-founder uh, knew and identified as people who could be part of Waterfield. And uh, that's how we kind of started the company. Um, and uh, that's that was the early stages. Today, uh, when you're looking, and I'm sure one of the things all founders do, they always have their radar on, to spot talented people who could join them as colleagues. What are some of your radar signatures? Where and how are you looking for talented people? How do you find talented people who could join you? Uh, great question. I think talent is really what makes the wealth management industry in some ways really tick. Um, but I always look out for uh, certainly people who will kind of put their hand up for assignments or more challenging roles uh, and you can see that spark which is there when someone who's not quite ready but is willing to make that effort to put up their hand uh, in some ways kind of moving out of their comfort zone those straight away tell me that there is a curiosity in this person and that's something that I do look for uh, that there is a curiosity to understand a little bit more, to be able to challenge themselves. Uh, so that's definitely a trait I look for. The other trait I look for is really around uh, authenticity and genuineness. It's 
I think over the years I've met so many different kinds of people that it's quite easy for me to try and to distinguish between the ones who are um, uh, are in some ways uh, have a big talk as opposed to those who are a little bit more uh, have a serious intent. So genuineness for me is another big thing that I look for, which really comes out in the communication. So for me, perhaps the what I look out for is how are these youngsters or talent or otherwise uh, communicating their authenticity, their genuineness, and of course, are they ready to move a little bit out of their comfort zone? Because our business is a new kind of business. So even if you come from the industry, you have to be ready to move out of distribution because where is our talent coming from? It's still the distribution industry. We have to be able to find people who are ready to take that leap of faith, to come out of distribution, to look at a new business model. So they've got to feel comfortable doing something that they've not done before. So these are the traits that I would really look for. Uh, what kind of people or what kind of skills or talent does it take to make it in wealth management? Um, I think you need to be a really good listener. Um, you need to be able to listen first before you prescribe anything because ultimately you are an advisor, you are a sounding board. You can't give advice unless you've understood what the problem is. And that means really good listening skills. So I think one big attribute would be listening. Uh, the other is to be um, a good problem solver because ultimately in the business of wealth management, particularly advisory, we are looking at solutions. We're not looking at products, right? So you need to be able to orient yourself towards giving good solutions to, to someone. Um, so I think that's the other thing that I would look at. Um, these are the two. two Still sticking with people and talent, do you have any favorite open-ended questions that you tend to ask people during an interview or a first conversation? Um, I always ask them what are their career aspirations because I find that... Um, when people tend to hire, we tend to hire sometimes for the immediate role, whereas it's very important to understand what is the aspiration of that person longer term, because you may bring them into your company now, but if longer term you've not understood what their aspiration is, you may lose them within a few years. So for me, I find by asking them that question, I get a very good sense of who they want to be, who they are, where they want to get to, which may get missed out when you're asking for the immediate role that you're hiring. This is one of my favorite questions to ask. From the time that you've started Waterfield Advisors to today, have you seen an evolution in the answers that you're getting to this question the last, like, you know, 10, 12 years? What are your career aspirations? Um... I actually find most people get stumped at that question. They've never thought that far or they've not. Isn't it, isn't, isn't it ironic it that is. like professionals uh, not having thought through? I mean, you, if you're in an interview, yeah. one would assume that the first thing that you would, yeah. you know, have clarity on yes. is 
what are your career aspirations? Aspirations, and it's not there. Um, so, so I actually sometimes then try to help them out, saying that you know, well, um, where would you like to be? What kind of roles would you like to do? And you try to just make it a little easier for them to try and get their head round. Um, but that's something that surprised me. I will say that, uh, Rohan. Has Waterfield Advisors ever, ever had any near-death experiences? Mm. I'm assuming the one that you spoke of when you started and like yeah, you know, about a that, year in. That was that was near death. Uh, after that, we've always uh, we've always just continued to plod along because, um, and I think that's another very important trait as an entrepreneur is just determination, resolve, belief. You just know that, you know, you're going to make it, <laughs> you know. It's, you're, you're going to, whatever are the ups and downs. I think that mental strength is extremely important, certainly for founders, to be able to go through whatever are the ups and downs that the journey will have. And it's, it's never going to be smooth sailing. I think that's one thing that, all of us in this, as entrepreneurs, will know. But to be able to uh, manage that situation well, to be able to keep your mental and physical strength throughout that period, I think those are critical in any journey. Uh, as CEO, what is it that you feel you add most value to Waterfield Advisors? Um, I think the vision um, I think that's one, the ability to um, have that upfront and stated. The other, interestingly, Rohan, I found that even leadership styles have had to evolve. In the early days, it was always about leading from the front. Uh, when I Rolling up your sleeves, doing yeah, whatever it took. Whatever it took so that you're kind of there, you're in it, you're with them, you're with the troops and everyone is out there to garner business. When I think about what it has to be going forward, I think of it more like uh, leading from behind or basically as a shepherd because now you have a situation where you've got senior people in the right roles to take the business forward and your role is more about keeping the flock together so that there are no kind of out you know if somebody's straying how do you bring them back into the fold so I've even sensed as an entrepreneur my own leadership style has had to change from leading from the front to actually now saying okay I'm going to lead like a shepherd from behind. Was that hard? Because that transition sometimes isn't easy for founders very who are hard. used to being hard charging in the trenches. Very, very hard. Very hard. Because you always, or maybe it's a bit, maybe it's just me as a personality, you want to be more in control. Um, and I can tell you that for me, um, I'm a bit of a perfectionist. I was about to add perfection. Uh, you yeah. added it yourself. Uh, and that's very hard to be able to say it doesn't have to be 100% right. It's okay if it's... Someone else it, needs to do it 80%, 80% for them to discover it. Exactly. Take it exactly. But that's a mental shift that I've had to make. Uh, it's not been easy. But I also realize, and even now, I won't even say that I'm there. I will say that it's a journey for me 
as an individual to let go a little and to make sure that I can allow the others to develop and let them have the journey that I've had uh, in the past. How much of a planned person are you when it comes to your week? The week starting out, what percentage of your calendar is already filled up and what percentage is? Very planned. Very planned uh, in that sense that uh, I have a lot of meetings with clients and that's really where I spend a lot of my time as well. Um, so their schedules tend to be uh, quite sacrosanct. sacrosanct. So for me, uh, because of that, my schedule is quite planned and programmed. What I do try to do is keep um, half a day a week without any meetings because I realize that if I fill the entire week with meetings, I don't have enough thinking time. And for me, having that ability to just go back to what I would call my me time is really important. So what I've tried to do is half a day a week is with no meetings so that I can just think um, whether it's about... Is it a particular day? Not a particular day. Uh, not necessarily a particular day. It normally tends to be midweek. Because I think... Uh, I ask because yeah. I keep Wednesdays free yeah, ex- of meetings for myself. Exactly. So, I mean, Monday, impossible. Friday, definitely not. You're already thinking about the weekend. So, uh, midweek, it's either a Tuesday or a Wednesday. And what where, what does that time look like? So, that time looks like thinking about, you know, there are some clients that I may manage directly. So, if I have to plan for a meeting with them... I like to think about what I'm going to discuss with them. It's about time that I would use to read a report that I haven't been able to read. Um, and of course, these days, we just there's a deluge of information. Are you an open tab person? Do you have lots of open tabs uh, in your browser or do you <laughs> save them somewhere? I save it. I actually save them. So what I do is when I see a good report, I always save it. Um, so that I can read it on a flight or I can just read it over the weekend or sometimes I read it during this half a day that I keep aside because it's something interesting that would have piqued my interest. Um, So for me, having that half a day is just to be able to uh, figure out a little bit about what are my priorities um, and just gives me that space and time to do that. What are some of the things that you spend a lot of time on but don't enjoy but add a lot of value to Waterfield Advisors as CEO. These are things that you do as CEO even though you not enjoy it but they're absolutely essential to Waterfield Advisors. I think given where we are in the phase of our journey, um, I spend a lot of time on people um, and both internal within the organization and external. Um, external, I love. Internal, it's like, how do you bring everybody up the curve? And because we are still quite a young organization, um, helping people with their leadership as well and how they come across and their own their own aspirations and helping them reach that is something that takes up a lot of time. Um, I don't always enjoy it because it means I'm taking out time from being out there and talking to clients more, because that's something that I enjoy. But I also know that if it didn't happen, um, 
It's not securing the future of the company. So it's something that you have to do. Um, but um, it's, um, I sometimes wish, you know, it, it would be easier for people to to just get on with it. <laughs> but that doesn't happen. We're human beings at the end of the day. Everyone has their own you know, insecurities, their own, you know. And, and for us, particularly when we've scaled up our business so quickly in the last one year, you have people who've been with you for a long time in Waterfield. You've got the newer group that's come in, integrating both, making sure that the culture is right, that the culture is still preserved to what it is. Those are the things that take up a lot of my time or have more recently. And I just... Uh, and I sometimes think that, you know, I should be out there more. And you think that, but I also then tell myself that this is important. Thank you for listening to First Principles, the weekly leadership podcast from the Ken. That's right. From this month on, you can expect episodes from First Principles every single Thursday. Meanwhile, and in parallel, the First Principles newsletter is also weekly now. We're hitting new records each week for community participation with subscribers sending in book recommendations, personal habit, favorite songs, and of course my favorite, Silent Sunday photographs. So if you're a fan of mental models, leadership, decision-making, entrepreneurship, and self-reflection, you can rely on us twice each week. Thursdays with the First Principles podcast and Sundays with the First Principles newsletter. You can find links to sign up or submit recommendations in the show notes. Before I go, I have a request. If you like our work, please tell us. Rate or review First Principles wherever you get your podcast. It's honestly the best judge of a podcast quality and the most reliable way for someone new to find us. This episode was hosted by me, Rohan Dharmakumar, and produced by Anushka Mukherjee. The audio editing is by Rajiv CN, our resident audio engineer. See you next Thursday.